Welcome to the unofficial House of Wind book club, ran by two best friends and self-declared members of the Night Court. Today, we're discussing chapters three and four of A Court of Thorns and Roses. I know you can hear me from the dark. I know you're listening from afar. I thought that no one could fix me. Can't get hold of my feelings. You in my head. You in my heart. I'm not afraid of the dark. how's your week been um it's been interesting it was a good one i had to get some blood work done and my phlebotomist really made my week yeah she never remembers who i am ever like she's drawn my blood five or six times um frequently enough too and we've met enough times that she should remember me but she doesn't and it just makes her even more charming because every single time she's like your eyes are gorgeous and i just I'm like, you know, we've had this conversation. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Thanks. This is the first time I've ever heard that from you. Wow. You definitely didn't say that last time. She says things that I'm just never prepared for. And like, I love her for it though, too, because she was drawing my blood and she was like, do you want to hear a dirty joke? I was like, well, what? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I got some dirty jokes. You want to hear them? And I was like, okay, but... Does she just have like a pocket full of dirty jokes ready for... I, you know, she thought about it. She was like, I got a few. And I was like, oh, all right. She ended up getting like interrupted. You didn't even get to hear the dirty joke? No, but like she's really good at what she does. So she was really fast about drawing my blood. And within like the same few breaths, she's just like, oh, do you need a note for school? I'm like, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You think I need a note for school and you're still going to offer up some dirty jokes? Okay, so I know you might be like a teenager going back to high school, but do you want to hear a sex joke? What? Excuse me, ma'am? Do you need something to get through your day? Well, I'm glad you got your blood drawn correctly. I am not glad she forgot you existed. It'll happen again. It Within the next three to six months, when I have to repeat the process and I go in again, she'll again be like, do I know you? <laughs> no. This I've never met you. Never. How do you feel about my eyes? What about you, Abby? <laughs> I got some good news. Okay, share. I lost 80 pounds. Okay. I mean, not like in one week. I didn't lose 80 pounds since last week. But like within three months of my gastric bypass surgery, I lost 80 pounds. It has been both the easiest and most difficult weight loss I've ever had in my whole life. But the cool thing is like I can't gain the weight back right now. Growing up overweight, your like biggest fear is like losing weight and then gaining it back. And now my tummy, we call her Polly the Pocket, my little tummy. Oh. And Polly uh, cannot hold more than a cup of food at a time. So I can't eat a whole bunch. So I can't eat enough calories to gain this weight back right now. And it's super cool. So... Uh, yeah, that's my, my highlight of the week. Oh, and I went from like 4XL in clothing, like size 26, 28, to um, I fit in a pair of American Eagle shorts, like normal people shorts, size 18. And I went from a size 3 to 4X in shirts, and now I wear an extra large in normal people shirts. All right. Okay. It has not been easy, but it's been worth it. That's exciting. Good job. Good work. That sounded condescending, but that's not how I meant it. For real. Good job. <laughs> oh, Libby, I have a question for you. I might have an answer. Since we, you know, now have a podcast with people who are actually listening to us, which is insane. Thank you for coming back. Hi, number one. Uh, number two, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, number three, we're going to let you get to know us a little bit better every week because we don't want to just be some strangers on the internet. <laughs> A person left a review and said that they felt like we were their best friends. So I thought in order to keep that going, we'd share a question every week. And this week's question is going to be, if you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, gosh. For the rest of my life. Yes. See, oh, gosh. That's hard because I change my mind a lot. I go through cravings where I focus on one meal for like two weeks straight. And then all of a sudden. Libby, when I visited you. All you ate was cherry tomatoes. Like, 
that's all you ate. You did not eat any other food. And I was very confused. So this one's going to be hard for you. This is because I, I do. I, I fixate on a food until all of a sudden it's like mid bite. And I'm like, oh, God, no. And then I'm done. And I fixate on the next one. Do you know that that's a symptom of ADHD? Is it really? Do you understand why our conversations go so smoothly and we start talking about something and then end up talking about cats in outer space? I have shirts of cats in outer space. Stop it. Libby, we are literally now talking about cats in outer space and we started with food. Oh, okay. You're right. Okay. Food. Um, I think, you know, as a kid, I could eat grilled cheese and chicken noodle soup together. Like that was the combo, which I grew up thinking everyone ate chicken noodle soup and grilled cheese together. Apparently not. Apparently it should have been tomato soup, but that's just not what happened in my household. I was just about to say it was tomato soup in our home. Yeah. In most homes it is, Abby. Just not ours, apparently. No tomato soup in your house. Don't you bring that trash in our home. (laughs) Chicken noodle only. But grilled cheese and chicken noodle soup, i it's a weird combination. I grew up with it. Ooh, or tacos. Tacos or grilled cheese and soup. Those are the two things that no matter what I'm craving, if you offer those up, I'm immediately in. All in. I have the most lame answer in the world. Okay. You ready? Because it says a meal. It doesn't say the meal has to be the same exact thing every day. I would have a salad. Oh. Because, listen, I could have chicken salad. I could have, like, regular good old, like, Caesar salad. I could have a pasta salad. That's cheating. The answer, my friend, is salad. Salad is the way to go. I didn't know there was a right answer. That's not fair. (laughs) Technically, there's not, but... Dang it. Now I'm really craving, like, a good pasta salad, and my... My husband was volunteering somewhere that had pasta salad today, but it it wasn't very good. I supported them anyway and bought it, but... You gotta be careful. Might have some food poisoning later, but it's fine. (laughs) Oh no. There's gonna be a delay on the episode release. Abby's dealing with pasta salad poisoning. Listen, we are girls with gastro issues. Plenty. It's fine. Girlies with digestion problems. I love when Libby and I message each other in the middle of the night at like ridiculous times. And so since we're, what, seven hours apart, one of us is always up at some point. Oh, yeah. I'll go, Libby, why are you awake? Because it's like 9 a.m. my time, but like 2 in the morning her time. And she goes, tummy troubles and the same vice versa. My favorite was messaging you from the Walgreens. And I was like, I am I am in a mood. I'm done with this tummy crap. My favorite thing is messaging you going, I almost pooped on a photo shoot. Oh, no. <laughs> we're not ashamed, guys. Oh, God. Okay, we should probably stop the uh, toilet talk. All right. Get on with the summary chapters. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Welcome to dramatic chapter summarizations with Libby. Because listening back, I felt like I sounded like a dramatic recording in, in, a, in a fun way, though. You did not. You sounded good. I've been listening way too much to the dramatic recordings on audiobooks uh, where they're very um, animated instead of just like a regular audiobook recording. Sometimes I can't handle it. And I giggle even in the most dramatic parts because I'm like, you need to calm down. Like, why would you say it like that? Um, all right, so let's dive in. Wait, how deep is the pool that you're diving in? Do what? You said you wanted to dive in. How deep is the pool? Is it a safe diving? I hope it's not the shallow end because we're going to have a very short podcast run. Welcome to our last episode ever. <laughs> Libby dived into the shallow end. Oh, I should not have had a big energy drink before recording today. Sorry. <laughs> you can go now. So let's dive in. We start chapter three with Favor packing the hides to take into town and sell. Elaine and Nesta notice and decide to join her, but they haven't bothered to speak to her after the night before, which Abby so fabulously covered in chapter two's summary. But they do decide to join along, knowing that Favor will have money that they want to spend. Today is market day, and as the sisters head to town, Favor notices that the already drab village only appears more bleak in the winter season. The sisters turn a corner and nearly avoid slamming into one another as they spot a zealot. We're introduced here to the children of the blessed who don't seem to understand boundaries or the word no. These fanatics make the villagers edgy as they worship the high fae who had once acted as evil tyrants over the humans. But the children of the blessed ignore the dark past and worship the fae as a form of god. The devotee in front of them asks the sisters to spare a moment and listen to the word of their overlord and savior. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Lords and saviors. Nesta immediately says no and tries to push onwards, but the woman steps in Nesta's path, not accepting her answer. Nesta is unfazed, however. 
and in the most intimidating fashion, tells her to get lost. The woman, now appearing more girl-like, retreats away. Nesta is clearly triggered and looks to offend the fae groupies, so she shows off the iron bracelet worn to ward off any fairies. It works. The children of the blessed are offended, but stay silent as Nesta and now other villagers are offering their disgusted opinions. And as the villagers, now having said their piece, go to move on, the acolyte insists that they had once held the same views, but no longer do, and neither should they. Thayer thinks of how the High Fae had ruled Prithian once, and were still a terrifying species. How could anyone worship them? Nesta continues to argue, and accuses the Fae of having probably eaten the other acolytes. The zealots are offended, but do not know when to quit, so they fire back in defense of the Fae, and Nesta opens her mouth to embarrass this girl further, but Feyre steps in. She voices that this is pointless, and the fanatic continues, insisting that it's not. It's worthy of their cause. Nesta can't resist, and states that it's not worthy whatsoever. Feyre pushes her sisters towards the market to finally be done with the exchange. Once at the market, Feyre gives her sisters the slip so she may handle the pelt selling alone. She approaches a mercenary who has eyes with varying shades of black that have Feyre almost getting lost in thoughts of light, shape, and color. But she focuses. The mercenary is defensive to start with her, but becomes curious once hearing that Feyre herself had hunted and skinned these pelts. The mercenary offers more money than it's even worth, commenting on how Feyre and her sisters simply look hungry. Feyre offers up some of her father's wood carvings to make the trade more fair, but the mercenary has no want or need for them. She approaches a mercenary who has eyes with varying shades of black that have Feyre almost getting lost in thoughts of light, shape, and color. But she focuses. The mercenary is defensive to start, but becomes curious once hearing Feyre hunted and skinned the pelts herself. The mercenary offers more money than what they're worth, commenting on how Feyre and her sisters just look hungry whenever uh, Feyre disagrees with the payment amount. Feyre offers up some of her father's wood carvings to make the trade more fair, but the mercenary has no want or need for them. The mercenary has a heavy coin purse because mercenaries tend to be paid well in their area. Their village is too insignificant to have an army to even defend it, so the villagers relied on a treaty that had been created 500 years prior with the Fae to keep them safe. This was just as reliable as the carvings on their cottage, though. So really, not at all. Feyre thought of the threat that the Fae were to them. She thought of how one was told to be able to turn bones to dust from afar. Running and fighting would be pointless against the Fae. The mercenary breaks Feyre's train of thought by handing her the coin and offering wisdom. Don't go so far into the woods. There's worse than wolves out there. Feyre worries the Fae may attack. Humans were once enslaved to them, building their civilizations out of their blood, sweat, and tears. Humans rebelled, and it took six human queens creating a treaty for the bloodshed to end. The wall was built, and humans and Fae lived apart from one another. We learn that the Fae have subspecies, such as Martax, with beast-like appearance, and all subspecies are very dangerous to humans, and Feyre becomes more repulsed knowing that the children of the blessed worship these people. I'm sorry, people? Worship these beings. That that would have been a better way to say that. But a high fae would make any subspecies look gentle. Feyre and the mercenary go their separate ways. Nesta and Elaine are unhappy that Feyre did business with the mercenary to begin with, revealing that they had once been robbed by one, but never bothered to report it. After all, who would care? Feyre sinks to Nesta's level and taunts that she should have told her precious Thomas Mandray, implying that they all knew he truly didn't and wouldn't care. And Nesta is ready to fight her, but her face reveals that she recalls Feyre has money and she wants it. Feyre is then made aware that Isaac is waiting for her. He's described to be relatively handsome and coming from sisters who are so stingy in kindness that must say something about him. Isaac was Feyre's first and only lover. Although the act itself wasn't skilled, it was a mutual release. There never had been and never would be a love between them. Just consensual bemusements, we'll call it. Nesta suggests Feyre taking precautions and Feyre counters back that it was too late for her to act like she cares now. Feyre gave each sister a 20 mark copper and then and heads off to meet Isaac in the hay. She later returns home and is relaxing, watching her sisters with their new spoils and feels the urge to bring up the Thomas Mandry debate again. She turns to begin, but snow shatters into the room, which is already filled with resounding roaring. A colossal being now stands in the doorway. That's where our bestie Sarah leaves us in that chapter. That brings us to chapter four. Feyre's hunting knife was in her hand before she knew it. In front of her and her screaming sisters stood an enormous beast with blonde fur. It was as big as a horse with a wolfish head and a feline body. The creature had elk-like horns sticking out from its head, yellow fangs, and razor-sharp claws. A scream came from the beast. Murderers, it screeched. It then hit Feyre. This monster was a fairy, and the wards her father had bartered for would do them no good against it. Both sisters screamed in fear, and instead of defending their home, their father was crouched in front of them, leaving Feyre alone to defend. Murderers, screamed the monster again. 
Farah's father attempted to defuse the situation from behind her, saying that if they had killed anyone or anything, it was done by mistake, unknowingly done. Farah grabbed another knife from the kitchen table and demanded for the beast to get out of their home. There was no iron she could see that could be used as a weapon besides the measly bracelets her sisters wore. The creature screamed a third time, shaking the whole cottage. Feyre attempted to throw her knife at the monster, but he quickly knocked it away with his paw. He demanded the killer come forward. Feyre stepped closer towards the creature, close enough to see his green and amber-flecked eyes, eyes that were not animal. Feyre, acting aloof, questioned who had died. The beast answered with a low growl, the wolf. He wanted to know who had murdered the large wolf with a gray coat. Pharaoh was contemplating lying to him, but stopped herself. It was common knowledge that fairies couldn't lie, but she wasn't sure if they could smell a lie on a human's tongue. She knew she couldn't outfight this beast, but maybe there was another way. She questioned what payment they could offer if the wolf had been mistakenly killed. The beast replied that the treaty between the humans and the fae demanded a specific payment. He questioned again who killed the wolf. Pharaoh looked at him dead in the eye and told the truth that she killed the wolf. But the monster didn't believe her and accused her of lying to defend her family. Nesta begged for mercy, pushing Elaine behind her to defend her. Their father stood up, wincing with pain. Faye repeated that she alone killed the wolf and had sold its hide at the market that day. She said that if she had known it wasn't just a wolf, she wouldn't have killed it. But the beast saw through that lie, saying knowledge of the true identity of the wolf would have only enticed Faye more. Feyre didn't disagree. She said that with all that they have done to the humankind, the death was deserved. In the face of fear, she held her chin high. Feyre knew in that moment that Nesta would protect Elaine, but not their father or Feyre. Nesta would protect the, quote, flower grower, the gentle heart, but Nesta knew Feyre would be able to defend herself. Feyre questioned what the payment for the treaty required, and the wolf answered that it was a life for a life. He quoted that any unprovoked attacks on fairy kind by humans are to be paid by one human life in exchange. Though Feyre didn't remember that section of the treaty, she knew that since fairies couldn't lie, he spoke the truth. She knew there was no escaping her demise. She asked that he end her outside, not where her family would have to deal with the aftermath. Instead, the beast gave her an ultimatum. Be killed then, or cross the wall to live the remainder of her life in Perinthian. Offer her life in place of the wolves. She was flabbergasted at the offer, wondering why he had even mentioned the loophole instead of killing her on sight. Pharaoh's father pleaded with the beast to spare his youngest daughter. His voice cracked, saying that Pharaoh was all... He couldn't finish his sentence, just pleaded again. He said he could get money in exchange, but the beast questioned just how much he thought his daughter's life was worth, wondering if the father could even put a price on his daughter's life. Feyre's heart broke. She couldn't look at her father, knowing he didn't have a dime to his name. Feyre took another step towards the monster, trying to put more distance between him and her family. She wondered if leaving her family and breaking her promise to her mother meant more than an old treaty she had no part in the creation of. So, she asked when they had to leave, knowing that she couldn't let her family watch her die, leaving them defenseless against this monster. He said now. They were to leave now. Feyre looked back to her family and instructed them on how to divvy up the remaining food, gave them information on where to hunt in the spring, declared that the money she made from selling the pelts would last them a while if they were careful with it. Any instruction she could quickly give to ensure their survival. With the last glance at her sisters, Feyre left Nesta with one warning. Whatever you do, don't marry Thomas. His father beats his mother, and the boys don't do anything to stop it. She reminded Nesta that bruises were harder to conceal than poverty. Neither Nesta nor Elaine responded. Feyre was pulled to the open door by the beast, and then Feyre's father grabbed her hand, trembling. For the first time in years, his eyes were clear and bold. He told her to never come back, even if she convinced the Fay all her debts were paid. That she was too good for them, too good for everyone there. He said, quote, you go somewhere new, and you make a name for yourself. And without another word... Feyre and the monster disappeared into the woods. Bum, bum, bum. This is why we don't put the book down. This is why we don't go to bed on time. Sarah, Bessie, you're causing some drama here. This is why your husbands get mad. My husband's like, you you going to bed? And I'm like, yeah, soon. He's like, so two in the morning or three? It's like, you know what? Don't judge me. I could have more expensive hobbies, all right? I could like things that cost us more money, okay? It's only a $10 book. Listen, there's a cliffhanger and I have to figure out what happens or I can't sleep. Oh my gosh, this ending. I remember reading this and immediately starting the next chapter because I couldn't wait. And it makes me so sad to know that we have to wait a full week to continue on with this book. But I just want to point out something that I didn't bullet point it, even though I do have my bullet points ready to go. She was ready this week, guys. I I was proud of me. I did good. It just occurred to me 
Farah could have at any point pointed out that Thomas Mandre's family was just a bunch of abusers. Why would you keep this in your back pocket? You've been arguing with her for so long about not being like not marrying this guy. You could have just begun with that. You could have led with, hey, they beat the mother. They they don't have enough money to feed each other and they are horribly abusive. Like I feel like starting there She's like, just just don't do it. Don't get proposed. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm just going to fight you. Just don't. Don't do it. Ma'am. You should just listen to me. I'm not going to give you any reason. Like, why? Why wouldn't you have begun there and say, hey, homeboy abuses the females in his family. Like, let's, let's not. Don't put yourself in that situation. I love how you're focusing on this when, like, a literal wolf cat monster just kidnapped her for her house forever. Nesta, don't get married, but Feyre can just deal with this cat wolf man with horns. The never-ending failures in communication these people have, I need to just accept it, but it's like, why? Like, this... And I get why. We'd have a lot shorter of a book without any of it, but come on. Libby, we all have issues. There's just happens to be can't communicate worth anything. It's fine. Uh, along those lines, literally, there is no communication between the girls at the very start of the chapter. They didn't talk at all from the night before. Yeah, how rude. Like, they clearly want something from Feyre, and, like, they have nothing to give her in return. They're not going to acknowledge her. They're not going to do anything other than just, like, push themselves onto her and follow along. Nesta did cut wood in the morning. I'm going to give her that. She woke up and cut the wood. Now, granted, she probably only did that because she definitely wanted something from Feyre at the market. Oh, absolutely. But, like, let's give our least favorite character right now, well, the dad's least favorite character, our second least favorite character a little bit. Let's give her a little bit. I will. You know, she does start to really intimidate me. Feyre refers to her as, like, a queen without a throne. And I was like, oh. oh." That quote. When I read that, I was like, I know someone like that you know and that is such a perfect way to put it abby stop it thanks (laughs) it was not you libby i literally highlighted it and this is the exact quote it says um it was impressive truly impressive to see nesta go ramrod straight to square her shoulders and look down her nose at the young acolyte a queen without a throne oh bestie sarah you're killing me when the children of the blessed start to kind of retreat from her I'm like, yeah, that, I get it. I get why. That would scare me. I wouldn't want to keep interacting with her. I can't relate to that kind of a sibling. Oh my gosh. Okay. Focusing now. <laughs> why does it take so much for the children of the blessed to just back off? Like, why, why would you think pestering and pushing and pushing would convince someone to follow in your ways? It felt a lot like a, a mirror to our actual world of people doing whatever it takes to push their beliefs whether it's religious or otherwise and not accepting no and being so convinced that you are condemning yourself if you don't do the things they want you to do no it doesn't work it doesn't work to push your narrative down someone else's throat my favorite part is when like the acolyte comes back and says to all the negative stuff that Nesta said no, it's our our gods would never do that. Oh, yeah. Like, may the immortal light shine upon thee, sisters. What? What? No. No shining of any light from your magical fairy gods. I don't want it. When Nessa puts out her um, bracelet to show her iron bracelet, and the acolytes literally retreat, and they're like, how dare you wear that in front of us? It's a bracelet, my dudes. It's a bracelet. We can calm down. And what I find is funny is that the acolytes are wearing silver bells. I mean, I know this is a book about fantasy and high fae or just fae in general, but this seems almost insulting. Like you're going with this stigma of silver bell, like fairies being dainty little silver. Jingle, jingle. Right. Like if they're so powerful that they can just wipe us all out without trying and they make jingle, jingle noises. It's like a cat with a collar. It would ruin it for me. How they're they're mightier than thou, right? They, they're on their high horse. And then while they're trying to preach about their high fey lords and the land of Perinthian, there's these villagers just calling them horrible names. Horrible. Another cool part was um, when the main acolyte that was talking to the, the sisters was because it affected me so much. There was a part where the... 
the acolyte, when she was talking to Nesta and trying to convince Nesta, you know, how great the Fae are, she was saying that a friend of her cousin went to the border as their offering to Corinthian, and she's not been seen since. And this woman's thinking, like, now she's married to this high lord. She's living this life of luxury. And Nesta sees right through it and is like, hey, dude, she's probably dead. Like, she probably got eaten. That That is the one instance of, I think, Nesta just being honest, not even trying to be cruel. I mean, maybe she probably enjoyed the cruelty of, of the honesty. But, yeah, like, how many people have come back that we know of actually come back and we know what happens? Because even fair is, like, we, we have very, very little accounts to go off of of what happens when a human goes over the wall. Also, how many high lords are there that all of these children of the blessed are about to get over there and fall in love and marry a high fae? All we know is that there's some uh, non-gods, lords, ruling over in Corinthian, and these children of the blessed think they're the greatest thing in the world and worship them, give up offerings of humans at the border. Like, that's a normal sentence. Most of the time when I picture an offering, it's not a good thing. It's historically never been a great thing to be an offering. She really covers the iron bracelets and the iron accessories quite a bit. Um, we're, we're talking about how, like, Nesta and Elaine went and got themselves iron bracelets. Oh, but what about Feyre? You have another sister. Like, you just... You don't want to get her one? Like, Nessa's like, this one's for me, this one's for Elaine, and Feyre's up by herself. This one's our backup in case we want to change into another one. Uh, and that's it. I love that it's their baby sister. And they're like, yeah, we're going to get matching bracelets and you can die. It was so cold. Everyone relies on these iron accessories so much that it almost reminds me of how like people rumored to use garlic against vampires is it really effective guys like how much does that stuff actually work it's the same concept why why would iron be that threatening it's like when people post on facebook like i don't give you permission to sh to take my photos is that really gonna do anything and then i love how all the villagers start surrounding the the, the two that are talking oh they it's like sharks swarming in they're all like yeah let's do this Literally. And then Elaine, like, starts to get nervous. And at that point, Feyre's like, all right, we're stopping this right now. And literally, like, counter-directs the girls and, and takes them back towards the town square to leave the acolytes alone. But I love how Nesta was willing to put up a fight. You were not fighting with that woman. She knew that the Children of the Blessed were some fools. So Isaac and Feyre, I'm picking up on how it sounds like they're trauma bonding over their awful lives. Um, you know, and like Isaac, again, with the freaking bracelets, he offers to buy, buy her an iron bracelet. And I know that I know that Favor talks about how there's no love. There's nothing. There never would be between them. But the more I, I like she talks about Isaac, it almost sounds like if she would have given him the chance that there could have been something. You say that, but but we even learn like he's the only son. No, he's the eldest son of the only wealthy farmer in the area. Do you really think? that her being basically a, a, a poor peasant at this point, she'd be able to marry a wealthy man's son? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I could see why she wouldn't even give herself a chance to feel anything for Isaac. She could just be putting up, like we've mentioned before with other characters, a wall to keep herself safe. Um, but I still see the way Isaac, like he's teaching her to, how, to, how to build snares. He's giving her these bracelets he's opening up about these parts of his life these deeper parts of his life and the things that he's faced and endured and she reciprocates with conversation sometimes but for the most part she's turning him down she's shutting it down and then he's even married and she's like oh well, i'm not going to seek him out i'm just kind of moved on with my life but obviously he's seeking her out i just i'm seeing and it could just be from the way i'm reading i'm seeing signs that isaac would have been willing to entertain at least the thought of some form of relationship at some point. And because we learned that she, I mean, she calls him relatively handsome. We know that he's soft-spoken. But when you're going back to that trauma bonding, they, I mean, Bestie Sarah even says that Feyre saw the darkness running through him and they bonded over how crappy their lives were. And they just knew that they would never get better. And when you're in that dark headspace, if you've got somebody with you that is giving you the, I mean, the physical release of sex, we're not kids here, we're going to talk openly. And Feyre 
I mean, Isaac was her first and only lover in two years. So we know that this rumbling in the barn, rolling in the barn situation has been going on for two years. And we even find there's no love between us and never had been because we know he's soon to be married. And Farah, I mean, there's no dowry for her. Just like she said for Nesta, they've got nothing to give for her. That wealthy father is going to want something, you know, for his his son's hand. So, so let's lighten this a little bit. <laughs> this is this is sucks. Um, the men can take birth control. Excuse me. Can we live in this world, Sarah? Thank you. I was so excited reading that. Thank you. Thank you. Because yes, I know this is a made up world. This is all fantasy. But even reading other books of the same genre you're not seeing authors taking that liberty to you know make it a fantasy make it the things that you want to happen i could go on my rant i need to like take a breath let's take down the patriarchy thank you bestie so after they leave the acolytes just kind of like standing there with the whole crowd watching them they were kind of like ditches her sister at the edge of the square and's like Hey, peace. I'll see you later. I'm going to go deal with these pelts. See you. And the girls are like, uh, okay. She sees like these three options, right? Um, there's three options of, of where she can sell these pelts. So she's got like her regular two she would go to, like a, a clo- clother. Is that how you say it? Clothier? I'm clo- Yeah. But like they're immediately uninterested. Yeah, the clother and the cobbler. They're both, she can just tell they're like, uh, no thanks. And so she sees what this random strange woman, uh, let's not mention huge woman, like super tall built woman who that's my favorite type of person because I'm six one. So hell yeah. Thanks, bestie. Um, she sees this really tall woman with scars and weapons. And Feyre says um, she was like a, a mountain of a woman sitting on the lip of their broken square fountain without any cart or stall, but looking like she was holding court nonetheless. I've yet to find other books that are describing women of different shapes and sizes and builds so beautifully. Very few times do I read a book where it's like there's a character that's built with curves or with strength or with height that isn't outside of the typical, I'm five foot three and I don't have any fat. I don't ever have to eat. Somehow I forget to eat. Come on, stop it stop no but like she talks about like this mountain of a woman and like you're like it's not followed up with she terrified me like no like she's got black eyes of varying colors Pharaoh wants to dive into the colors and and paint with them and it's just like ah, I love it thank you thanks SJM now to counterpoint that I love how Bessie Sarah explains in great detail how much power this woman has, right? But none of it is is scary. She says she has interesting eyes, you know, not just one a shade of black, but with many browns. She says that she was a mountain of a woman. You know, you're getting this, this sense of, oh, shit, this woman's impressive. Now, but when it comes to her weapons, now her weapons were immediately gleaming and wicked. So... The contrast between the two where this woman, while she's intense, while she's got all this power, she's not scary. But the weapons, on the other hand, those are what's scaring Feyre. And I thought that was really interesting. But I appreciate that. I appreciate that, like, you can show how intimidating the character has the potential to be without tearing her apart and being this ugly, wicked, beastly form of a person. I love that. And I love how, like, at first, she's to Feyre, she goes, what business do you have with me? Why are you here? Like, what do you, yeah, what do you want? She's cut into the chase, and... I got mountain woman things to do. I got tall lady things to do. And I love how you you get this sense of power from this woman, but then once Farah shows the pelts and shows her strength, really, shows her strength of going to hunt down the deer and hunt down the, the wolf. Yeah, her own power. This woman gives her money. I mean, gives her much more money than she, quote, deserves for these pelts. Oh, that brings me to a bullet point. Bullet point. Let's hear it, Lib. Bullet point. In the perspective, this is my own kind of mocking perspective. Do you want my dad's shitty wood carvings? Like, we just sat here and talked about how pointless and useless these things are and how like it's like he's it's not like he was born with a talent. He's not amazingly crafted at carving anything. They're just kind of eh, beginner little things he does at home. 
And she's like, would that make it even? I mean, she, it's all they have, though. I know. It frustrated me because we just sat there and talked about how the dad's like, this will take care of my family. And she's almost proving it right. Like, no, no. Damn it, Feyre. So I'm really, I'm really relieved that she was like, no, just no. But I love how she examines the pelts. Like, she's genuinely glad that she has the pelts to be able to, to buy, right? And then when she names her price... The first thing Feyre says is, I don't need pity. You know somebody's wounded. You know somebody's not good when the first thing they do is go on the defense. Well, because Nesta and Elaine would have been like, yep, thank you. Absolutely. Give it all. And like Feyre, I don't want to say it. I'm not saying it in a bad way. Feyre's got still some sense of pride left. She's not going to be pitied. She's going to only accept what she's earned. Right. But at this point, like you need to accept the hand you're given and if somebody's gonna come and give you help like in this moment which she did i'm very proud of her she swallowed her pride in that moment and accepted the help and the mercenary goes no but you need my money she looks over to her sisters she looks back at pharaoh all of them are skin and bones goes no i'm not pitying you but somebody helped me once and now i want to repay that debt yes well and like what gutted me is when she was like you know you and your sisters you can tell they're your sisters because of your hair color and you all look hungry and i'm just like oh like that hurts that like we know obviously they're hungry we've heard the descriptions the self-described portrayal of the characters but so for for someone else to come in and be like you guys just simply look hungry like that that makes me so sad for for all of them yes even nesta it makes me sad and i love how we learn a little bit more about the world we learned that the territory was too small to maintain a standing army to monitor the wall with Perinthian, and the villagers could rely only on the strength of the treaty forged 500 years ago you know and then we learned that people are wearing this iron to defend themselves it's the last hope you know they've got of, of any sort of defense but uh Feyre says nothing can be done against the fairies in reality you know, you can wear all this fancy little jewelry, you can carry the iron swords, you can do whatever you'd like. But in reality, there's nothing to be done against their power, except for the treaty. Right. Well, she describes a fairy that like can turn your bones into dust, like how far away? Well, when they're talking about like how humans built their civilizations, look, don't judge me. I know I draw similarities in weird ways, but it just made me think of the Prince of Egypt movie at the beginning where it's all the people... Right, like that's the image I'm getting is that... Again, about the worlds, right? Like long, long ago, the humans were slaves to the High Lord and it took six mortal queens to craft up the treaty for the slaughter to cease from the war. Equivalent, like the humans were like in the trenches being just absolutely terrorized and still having to give literally everything they had themselves all to build these luxuries for the Fae who are already way more strong and powerful than the human. Math ain't mathin. That's what I imagine it to have looked like. <gasps> okay. That's a perfect correlation between the two. So they do all this work, then they turn against them, have this revolution, and the only way that this war is stopped is six mortal queens crafted up a treaty and it split the world in two. The northern half of the wall is all for the high fae and fairies. And the south was for the cowering mortals. We also have the part where the beast or the monster breaks in. Oh, yeah. You know, the most important part of the whole. You know, you're just going to slide that one in real quick. What made me kind of like, it made me mad, but it also speaks to their characters is that the sisters, Elena and Esta, and their dad immediately are kneeling and crouching in fear. They're cowering. They're begging for their lives. But, like, Farah, being the bad bitch she is, she stands between them. Like, she's just like, you know what? I'm, if I'm going to go down, like, I'm going to do it defending the worst people ever, the people that treat me like complete garbage. Did you make a note, too? I have a counter bullet to yours, Libby. Okay, so yes. Right. Okay, but you read a little bit more into that. It says, my sisters scream, kneeling against the wall of the hearth, but my father crouched in front of them. I'm going to give this man at least that. Like, at least he crouched in front of them. Like, that's got to be something, right? That, okay, that is fair. What makes all of that irrelevant to me is that Feyre stood. She stood. She's already spent a previous chapter going on about how she knows there is no point in fighting or running. Like, you are not going to win in a fight against a fairy. And yet she still stands well, willing to take the brunt between the monster and her family. A family who has, again, treated her so poorly and taken advantage of her. Right, but I think if we're going to go back to the whole therapy thing, because that seems to be 
a big topic here. I feel like their fight or flight response is flight, right? All three of them, Nesta, Elaine, and Dad. Their fight or flight response, their initial response is to flight and Farah's is to fight. Like down to her core, she knows that her option is to fight. So, I mean, it even comes up within the first page of that chapter. It says, but I didn't have room for terror. Wouldn't give it an inch of space despite my heart's wild pounding in my ears. You know, she's saying I'm terrified. Instead of backing down, instead of running away, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up and fight against my family. And I guess like reading it, it it actually made me picture my own sister. Um, Not that I being the oldest would be a Nesta. Oh my gosh. I hope I wouldn't do any of that stuff. But I've also seen my, my, one of my younger sisters do that as well. And so I just kind of pictured the the moments that she has been in where she could have easily just broken down or froze up or, or ran off from whatever the difficult situation was. And she didn't, she snapped into, uh, into action and did what she needed to do. But imagine how terrifying that is. Like you're sitting there and we kind of skipped over like they were finally happy at the end of chapter three. The family kind of has a sense of relief. They're all sitting around the fire there. Do they though? Because Feyre is ready to start up another fight with Nesta. Well, I mean, at least she's at, she's at a part where that is the big issue, not like finding food, right? That's true. That's true. This is as good a time as any is what she says to do this because I feel like they're finally sitting there. They're finally happy. The girls are laughing around the fire. The dad's falling asleep in his chair. Feyre has a moment to breathe and she's going to start this conversation with her sister because not only is she not thinking about being hungry because they just got money for food and they just had the deer so things are starting to relax oh we completely skipped over this the mercenary when the mercenary looks at those pelts she goes I think this is just a wolf. She goes, it's a big wolf, but it doesn't look like a fairy. And so that relief kind of had to be flushed through Feyre's system thinking, okay, everything is fine now. I've gotten rid of the pelt. We've got the food. My sisters are taken care of. We have enough money to get us through for a little bit. Now let me talk to my sister about this. And then before she gets that word out, before she's about to say, hey, please don't marry that Thomas dude, the door busts in snow's coming in and the word that Vesti sarah put down was because i was like oh that's a good word snow burst into the room it just shatters in man demands your attention i can feel that i can not i have a brain where i can't see things but i i can feel that emotion and an enormous growling shape appeared in the doorway what i want to say that my first reaction would be to fight but you know what i might cower back and go oh my god that's terrifying obviously i'm speaking from my own standpoints where I've, I've been in situations where I was or family was faced with the fight or flight reaction. And so like I have been lucky enough to see my own siblings plenty of times put the needs and the, the care of like each other ahead of their own. So I've, I've seen, I've, I've witnessed firsthand where my siblings have jumped in the line of, I wouldn't say fire, nothing that ridiculous, but have jumped up. So I've seen like that act of love. And so like, that's why it moves me so much that Farah, who she's, she is the baby. She, and in, in our eyes, she is the one who should be protected. And she is the one that's willing to do whatever it takes. She'll go down with dignity, knowing that it was to protect the people whether they deserved it or not. Chapter four opens with the knife was in my hand before I knew it. So it really was her instincts. I think it's that all that time being out in the woods and all the time she spent hunting for her family that without even thinking she grabbed that knife to defend her family. And you're right, that is, I just got chills. That's such a big deal for your first instinct to be like, these are my people that I must defend without conscious thought. That's amazing. I mean, my sister, when she was, gosh, I I was like nine or 10. So she had to be like two or three. We moved to Hawaii and she um, ran to the deep end of a pool. And I I knew how to swim. She did not. She ran to the deep end of the pool and just jumped. I was close to my dad. And like, I don't know if it just didn't hit him right away. But like immediately I took off. There wasn't even a thought. And so I do, I, I agree that it's instinctual because I don't remember thinking, oh no, or this, this bad thing's going to happen. I just remember at nine or 10 seeing my two or three year old sister dive into the freaking pool. And this is still her to this day. She is just so without caution and we love the free spirit in her. It's not a bad thing, but oh my, Samantha. We love sunshine. If I, if I'm going gray, 
Thank you. And I just took off. I took off down the pool and like I was not tall enough to to be keeping her hoisted above. So she was like on my shoulders when I got to her and I'm like, just get to the edge of the pool and then you can breathe too. So like I've been in circumstances where you just snap into it because immediately it's like this adrenaline of like, those are the people I love. It doesn't matter. That's what needs to be done. I've got a story. I remember this because my mom still makes fun of me for it. My whole family does. But I, it was a moment of I must protect my siblings. So my mom had left to go to the store. My brother and I were probably like six and seven, right? She left for the store and we're sitting there, we're watching TV and all of a sudden I hear this alarm beeping. And to seven-year-old me, I think that's the fire alarm. And it had just snowed outside. So I'm like, oh no, the house is burning down. What do we do? We go to the neighbor's house. We ask for help because my parents are gone. So what do I do? I leave my sister downstairs in the basement to die in the fire. And then I, (laughs) I grab my little brother Mitchell and I take him and I run to my neighbor's house. And I, I mean, I don't have shoes on. I grabbed my brother and no blanket, no anything. We were barefoot in pajamas. And I remember holding him and running to the neighbors. And I mean, they weren't close. It was a good, like, I don't know, quarter mile. I run over to the neighbor's house and she still remembers opening up the door to see me and Mitchell barefoot, shivering, shaking because it had just snowed like two feet outside. And me panicking and and just wanting to make sure my brother was was okay and so yeah and I don't remember consciously thinking oh there's a fire we should get out I remember he needs help something's going to happen if we don't get him out of this house so you're right that instinct can kick in in ways that you you don't expect it means a lot to Feyre's character for her first thing was to defend and it shows a lot about her sibling and her dad that their first thing was to cower and I guess that's why it's hard for me to put myself in those positions of like just retreating in myself. It's hard for me to connect and feel like understanding towards those actions, but I have to respect that that is just what they do, that they're not doing it maliciously. Okay, let's let's give it a second here though. So this huge beast comes in screaming, murderers. So they're cowering, Feyre is defending and says, get out of my house. And all the beast says again is murderers. And finally, the dad's like, I don't know what we've done. He stands up, give him that. He he gets up and he's like, hey, I don't know what we've done. Nesta goes, we're not murderers. Feyre's silent because she knows. She knew in the back of her mind something was off. But like how funny would it have been if he was like, oh my God, I am so sorry. I'm supposed to be at the cottage next door. Wrong house. He just screams, who killed them? And I love how Feyre's trying to play aloof. She's like, killed, killed who? Who killed? I don't, what? He's like the gray wolf who killed the gray wolf. And she finally is like, okay. Me? No. Let's be honest. So she tries to get around and is like, hey, if like he somehow died by accident, what are we going to do about that? What's the payment for the treaty? And he goes, a life for a life. And immediately in my head, I was like, how is the book going to end here? She can't die. That, that's where I went too. No, no part of me was just like, let's see how we can twist this one. Let's see how we can say what's your favorite meal and pull a crappy answer. Salad. Love salad. That's my thought too was, oh, how is she going to get out of this? Like, how is she going to get away? Like, where is this going to end up? And and we kind of know with, with all the Fae, there's always loopholes. And so I was literally thinking, what's the loophole here? And he goes. Well, and that's not just in this story, but like, I mean, you hear folktale from like Ireland even and like fairies are described to be, yeah, to be tricksters and you have to be very careful. And if you play D&D with my husband, you will learn the hard way that you can't just be nice to a fairy. Hey, listen, remember when we played over New Year's? I remember. We tried so hard for our husbands. We really did. He's like a life for a life, right? And he even quotes the treaty and says, any unprovoked attack on a fairy kind by humans are to be paid only by a human life in exchange. And I knew immediately there with that wording, something was up. And so when Pharaoh's like, all right, just please don't kill me in my family's home. So they don't have to like clean up my blood. When she said that, I knew something was up. Because even with his wording, I was still just stressed that it's like, how is she going to get away? But when her retort was like, just not in my home where it, I was like, that's weird. Like that's, that's a lot. of Why isn't he just doing it? Also, the fact that we, we have grown to know this character to have so much strength for her to immediately back down and be like, all right, so 
Can we get killed outside? That was too easy. Too quick. Well, the treaty says I must claim your life in some way. So do you want to, like, live in Perinthian with me forever? Which was weird to me. It was weird. You burst in screaming murderers. You know what? You're, you can come live with me. I, I, what? What a twist. I wonder if he's like... Sh- you're cute. You're cute. You want to just come live with me, little human? That's that's weird. It gives me Ted Bundy vibes where people were like, he's so cute. It's like, you know he killed people, right? No, but like, look at those dreamy eyes. It's like, you guys realize like what he did, right? Like, that's what, the, that's the vibe I'm getting. The Beast is like, you know, I could forgive it. And it's like, you know what she did. I love how he get, he gives her the ultimatum here. He's like, either one, you die now casual or two you come live with me forever at my house obviously something's not right that's too easy like i explain more my in favorite does question it she's like that's weird but not enough honestly like i would question it a hell of a lot more she even says you didn't need to mention the loophole like why would you do that and it does right you could have just gotten your revenge right you could have killed me upon sight it does give you like a thought what's the motivation yeah like why why bother even bringing it up and he really says it multiple times he gives her the offer multiple times yeah like he almost pushes her to choose that option I just have to say, I am getting a little frustrated with our bestie, Sarah, because she uses the phrase shredded to ribbons so many times. Should we start a count? No, this is the second time. The first time was when the mercenary was talking about the Martex. Um, She was talking about how the village was shredded to ribbons. Now, number two is when... The monster goes, you can walk outside right now and be shredded to ribbons. Oh, and don't you worry. I'm sure in the future we're going to hear a couple more times that things were shredded to ribbons. So, Bestie Sarah. Shredded to ribbons. I almost wonder if that's the nicest way you can describe such a gruesome act. Maybe. So, not only are we getting the fear from Pharaoh, right? And then this opportunity opens for her to live, but just live a whole different life. One life in exchange for the other. Then our bestie Sarah has to bring in the dad who we already have these odd feelings towards, right? And we're not quite sure how to feel. And his voice breaks when he goes, please spare my daughter. She's all, she is all, and he can't finish the sentence. And what I'm thinking in my head is she's all we've got. She's all we've got left. I read that particular part a few times while going over this and like at first I feel sad I'm just like oh like it just it shows his love for her in a way at first but then like rereading it I'm almost also still disappointed because he's he is begging in a way to like let us have her but at the same time what what is he saying like what is she all you have or is she all that you can do to stay alive she's your savior in this moment are you wanting her to stay around or do you know that without her you're doomed but also the amount of effort he gives almost feels minimal that he just keeps backing down. He like he doesn't even nobody even interrupts him. Nobody stops him. He stops himself. Well, that's not true. I mean, he does stop it there, but then he goes like he starts to beg again and the monster's like, "Stop." Well, then yeah, at that point, but in this sentence where he's saying she is all, he stops himself. He gives up. And even then, I I did I make note of the him saying, "Well, what about gold?" and like, it, all it takes is someone interrupting him again, and he doesn't bother to keep pushing the issue. It's just, oh, okay. Like, well, that's when the monster goes, because I highlighted this as, like, an emotional section. How much is your daughter's life worth to you? Do you think it equates to a sum? The monster is putting it back on the father, almost making the father a monster at this point, saying, all right, you said you can get gold. How much do you think your, your daughter's life's worth? For your kid, Libby, could you put an amount of money for your daughter's life? Oh no, my answer, if someone's asking me that, whatever you ask me for, if it's it's whatever you're asking me for in my child's life, you have it. I will do whatever you are requiring of me to keep my kid alive. I don't care what emotional toll, what financial toll, I don't care. Because to me, she's absolutely, yeah, my she's absolutely priceless. But to you, obviously you have a sum number or you have something that you, you feel is worth the life of my child. Tell me what it is so I can do that so I can keep my priceless child alive and with me. Right. He doesn't do that. Instead, 
he puts it back on Feyre because he, he just ends up being silent. That's why I'm disappointed. No, he just backs down immediately. And then Feyre's like, okay, ball's back in my court. Gotta make the decision. She's like, is this treaty worth breaking the promise I made to my mom? I get that her mom was dying, but like she's also, I know this is heartless. She's also dead. Also, isn't it breaking the treaty by dying and leaving them abandoned? Right. Legally, no, it does not make more sense to go with the promise you made to your mom. Like legally, from what we know of the treaty, you need to go with him. She didn't even like her mom. She doesn't have like positive memories about her. Uh, her family at the this point kind of treats her like crap too. So at what point do you just break? At what point do you need to be a little bit selfish and go, get me out of here? I've had all this on my back for this long. I've got this promise. I've got keeping this family alive. Here's a new life I would have broken. She held out a lot longer than I would have. I It would have been a long time ago. It, you know, like at this point, she's over here trying to convince Nesta not to go with Thomas. I've been like, bye, here you go. Here's her hand. I just wanted her to leave. <laughs> Less mouths to feed. My limit would have been broke. I could not have taken years of just treatment. We'll call it treatment this way. Well, and then she doesn't. She doesn't take it anymore because she literally looks at, at the monster and goes, when do we go? Yeah. I love that he said now. I love that there was no time for like uh, an emotional heartfelt goodbye because that doesn't sound like something Favor would do anyway. No, it would have it would have seemed probably for, I mean, Elaine, sure, but like, I don't think that anyone, like Nesta, absolutely not. It would have felt forced for Nesta and Farrah's characters. Um, But then like Farrah starts to info dump on her family. She's like, yo, here's what you need to do. That's what it was. She was totally info dumping or she was like, here's how you get food. Here's how you stay alive. Like, blah, blah, blah. Da, 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 da. the money will last you here's my bullet points yeah like here's what you need to do can we talk about what she left nesta with though the last little jab she's like hey here's why you don't marry that boy i wasn't trying to be a brat the whole time i wasn't trying to be an annoying little sister his dad beats his mom and they just sit by that made me so angry again Bringing us back to the point of why didn't you lead with that, Feyre? Why did you wait? Yeah, that is kind of annoying. <laughs> so then she leaves. If for future reference, if if I'm going to put myself in those positions, Abby, I want to know right away. I don't want the game of you shouldn't do that. I will tell you if I know. Please, yeah. Like I guys don't hesitate. I don't appreciate a long drawn out thing. If you got something to say to me, I want to know it. I don't like. The shuffle, the sidestep, the gentleness. No, but like also don't hurt my feelings. I cry. I think Nesta at that point needed it because she doesn't even respond. She doesn't even respond to her sister. She literally is silent. Elaine doesn't say anything. But at this point, the dad does. And I, this was a little bit of a turning point to me for liking the father, at least seeing some emotion from him for the first time ever, some true emotion. I loved how he was like, you were too good for us, too good for everyone here. Which is true. I mean, from what we know, Feyre's the only one with a, a, besides Elaine, we know Elaine has a good heart, but Feyre's the only one making actions to make her place a good home, right? But then he has to come back and be like, don't come back. Ouch. I'm sure there would be the part of me that would logically be like, I know he's not saying it to hurt my feelings, but like, thanks. But it still does. And she even says that. It does. And a part of me, like, I I was like, stand up, fight for her, show her. This is your last chance to show her she matters to you. And so, like, obviously, I understand why they're not doing it. It's, it's protecting everybody. It's the best option for her. So I get why it's not happening. But internally, I'm just screaming. I'm like, show her you appreciate her. Give her that much. No, he's just like, please don't come back. I get he had to cut her off like that because she would probably come back and try spend this whole time trying to fight for her family and make sure they're okay. He does end it with my favorite quote from the whole two chapters. And as somebody who has recently moved across the world and has started a new life for herself, this quote, which is, again, my favorite quote from these two chapters is, you go somewhere new and you make a name for yourself. <sighs> That's, yes. All right, dad, father, whatever. That was a good one. I'll give it to him on that. That was a really good one. It ends on this cliffhanger. It's like, and then we walked into the woods. Bestie, you cannot leave a chapter like that. Bro. <laughs> she does. Guys, again, 
you're gonna learn really fast if you don't already know that's that's the name of the game your quote was that one about the go make a name for yourself so mine was right after he bursts in and he's calling them murderers she's looking at the wards on the outside those worthless carvings again on the outside how they did nothing i think she's like in that mindset of like okay how do i defend like what what's what's the best option here and so that gives us the quote of but the beast's neck that looks like a good home for my knife. I was like, oh, chills. Can I give an honorable mention? Of course. The first page of chapter four, and it says, but I didn't have room for terror. Wouldn't give it an inch of space, despite my heart's wild pounding in my ears. We've all been there. But also, I want to say a close second was when she talks about Nesta being a queen without a throne. Our bestie's got some good word she's a good writer that means nothing coming from us because she is a new york times best-selling author but just in case you cared about two random women um caring about your writing style sarah we love it we're left this week on the cliffhanger of fair and the monster walk into the woods and so next week we will find out what happens a whole other week I mean, you can keep reading, but like you're not going to hear from us about it till next week. So, oh well, you can listen to the next episode if this is in the future. But don't skip yet because we've got star of the week this week, and I am so excited. Yes, star of the week this week is Lionheart Threads. They're both on Etsy and Instagram, and they are absolute dolls. I really love their Etsy shop. They've got a whole bunch of shirts and sweaters and sweatshirts and not only are they like basically book talk heaven but additionally they've got mama and me outfits which i mean libby as a mom please tell me you don't want everything in their store i really do <laughs> look my kid had a ramen noodle t-shirt matching with my husband and they got to be matchy now i get to do it it's your turn. I love it. Lionheart Threads wanted to share a little bit of info with us. She's a single mom to her little boy who's 21 months old. They're based in Pennsylvania. They started their business in August of 2022 as a way for her to work from home but still get to spend time with him. Whenever she refers to we, she means her little boy and her because he's the CEO of her business, which I love. She started as a mama and me shop uh, and then met one of her small business best friends. And she told her to read Akatar, and it completely shifted her whole focus of her Etsy, which is exactly why she's our star of the week here. So now she does both mama and me and bookish merch. Their shop link is in their bio. Their Instagram handle is lionheart underscore threads. And you can find a link to their Etsy there, but we're also going to put all this information in the show notes. So please go and give them some love. Additionally, they're in the process of a Bat Boys slash men um, of the Mass Universe launch, and they're really excited about it. Libby, she wanted to leave us with a little bit of information about her. She loves to travel. Ireland is her favorite place, and that's where her heart belongs. And she cannot wait to take her son there with her someday. And guys, um, I just have to tell you my favorite thing from her shop. There's two, actually. She has a shirt that says she's a 10, but she only likes fictional men. Uh, my husband might be a little offended, but I am very much getting the shirt. Additionally, she has a shirt that has like books and mountains and leaves, and it's freaking adorable, and a sword under it. And it says, I still read fairy tales. They're just a bit darker now. Lionheart, you're killing us. So I will leave uh, that one. That one. Yes, please. And her sweatshirts. I'm a sweatshirt girly, and gosh, I'm drooling. Oh, like, and then she's got one that's like the nightly binge reader. I'm like, she gets us. That seems personal. She's got a tank top here that says books and swords and dragons and fae. Like, I'm, look, guys, this is not an advertisement. I'm just geeking out because I love it. She's been a huge supporter of us literally since day one. So we just wanted to give her her very own special star of the week moment. And guys, she actually is so fantastic. She's got a 15% off promo code for listeners of A Court of Thrones and Podcast. ACOTAP, A-C-O-T-A-P, Podcast. All one word, all caps for 15% off. It's live and good to go now. So calling all dreamers, we want to hear from you guys. Send us an email to a court of thorns and podcasts at gmail.com and tell us everything. How you found the series, your favorite characters, questions you have for us. Hey, you know what would be great? If you guys could send in the icebreaker questions and we could start answering those too if you guys have questions for us we would love to interact with you guys for real this is a community it's a cult it's not just us it's you guys too so reach out please you can follow us on instagram at a court of thorns and podcast um or yeah just email us oh we also have a tiktok now it's at akatap 
A-C-O-T-A-P. So if you'd go follow us there. And I wanted to leave with one, one final thing. We have gotten so much support on this podcast after the first week. Guys, I genuinely have chills with how great this community is. We expected like maybe five people to listen. We've got over 100 views on YouTube. We've got, what, over 50 subscribers or followers on Spotify. You guys have been amazing. So we just wanted to give you like a, a seriously heartfelt thank you. This is something that Libby and I love to do. And the fact that we're getting support for it is... You guys have like blown us away, truly. I mean, we are super new to all of this. You guys have been incredibly kind and just uh, given us... More motivation than what we already had to keep this going. Hey, Libby. Libby, guess what? We're getting some members of the Akatap cult. Yeah. Yeah. I love that word, though. I like Akatap, Akatap. All right, guys. Um, Please share this podcast if you want to get any other cult members to join. Oh, we can say this now. If you guys would not mind leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify, that would be fantastic. It helps us get our name out there and it actually like raises us in the ranks. Is ranks the right way to say that? We're we're not professionals at this yet, so we have no idea what we're doing. But if you could please leave us a review, we've been told that really helps and we'd like reach more members of the uh, Akatar world. To the people who listen and the dreams that are answered. We'll see you next week. And remember, don't let the hard days win. I know you can hear me from the dark. I know you're listening from afar. I thought that no one could fix me. Can't get hold of my feelings with you in my head, with you in my heart. I'm not afraid of the dark. Not afraid of the dark. I am, though. I don't like the dark. I think that's cute. We need to keep that. Cult members. Because I had so many people who mentioned, like, I'm now a member of the cult. And I'm like, ah, you're a member of the Akatap cult. I love that 